Welcome back, beloved. Today's video is going to be just a little bit different. It's going to be a very simple video, very 30,000 foot flyover of Isaiah chapter 53. And it's meant to be a reminder, a reminder. Um, Peter writing in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 was writing to his disciples and said, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, by way of reminder. And, you know, I've made a video on Isaiah 53 in the past. It's very detailed. I think it's around 45 or 50 minutes. You can go to foolishministries.com and check it out. But the goal today is just to give you a quick flyover because I mention Isaiah 53 all the time. It was written 700 years before Christ is born, and it is completely about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way, the reason I'm doing this today is just to stir you guys up by way of reminder. Maybe you haven't watched that video. Maybe you've never seen Isaiah 53 in all its glory. Um, many great theologians and pastors, they've done 10 or 15 part sermon series on this chapter alone. This is the only chapter in the Bible that an evangelist, Philip the evangelist, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we have like a specific verse where one-on-one -on -one evangelism, Philip just goes to the Ethiopian eunuch and he evangelizes him. And so we don't really see a lot of like one-on-one -on -one conversations of evangelism in the Bible. But when we do see one in Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist uses... Isaiah 53. And I have seen more Jewish people and people in general saved by this chapter than any other chapter in the Bible. This chapter was absolutely instrumental in my own salvation. And, you know, the reason I'm doing this is to just remind us of the glories of this chapter. It's the gospel in Isaiah. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. Psalm 145 verse 7 is talking about the saints, and it says they will eagerly utter the memory. Remember, we want to stir you guys up by way of reminding you the memory of God's abundant goodness, and they will shout joyfully of your righteousness. That's what Isaiah 53 does. It shouts about the righteousness of God and the salvation of God. And so, Without any further ado, let's jump into Isaiah 53. Now, if you're watching on the screen, you'll notice this is Isaiah chapter 52. I need you to understand this is something that drives me crazy. Chapters and verses were added by men, right? Isaiah just wrote his letter. When we say chapter 52, that's not inspired. And largely, I think anyone who's written a Bible has done an amazing job at, at adding the chapters and verses properly. These men are, are great men of God, and I think they've done a really solid job. This is where it drives me insane. Isaiah 53 should start at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Pretty much all commentators agree on that. It is a chapter about the suffering servant. It's about the servant who dies so that others might live. And so I'm going to start at Isaiah 52, verse 13. In your head, this is all one massive paragraph about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin. It begins with, Behold, my servant will prosper. Just like Pontius Pilate, he, he pointed right to Jesus. He said, behold the man. Or in Zechariah chapter 6, we read of a man and it says, behold the man whose name is 
branch, and we know that Jesus is the branch, the offspring of King David, the ruler over the kings of the earth, right? When we speak of Jesus as the branch, we're speaking of his human messianic nature, but here we see him as a servant. It says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high. He will be lifted up and greatly exalted. This servant, he's going to be a servant. He's going to be humble, but exalted above the heavens, right? At the right hand of the Father. It says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Jesus didn't even look like a person by the time the Romans were done with him. He was beat to a bloody pulp. People were astonished at this servant. Thus, this is so important, he will sprinkle many nations. Read Revelation 5. The Lamb has purchased people for God with his blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation. When we hear of the term sprinkling, you need to read like Leviticus and and hear about the temple and the tabernacle and all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They would slaughter the lamb and then sprinkle the blood on everything to cover the sin, to atone for the sin. And they would sprinkle the mercy seat that contained the Ark of the Covenant and the broken law. They would sprinkle the blood of the lamb over it. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But this servant... He goes beyond a mere lamb sprinkling the holy place. He sprinkles nations. Entire nations are going to be saved through the blood sprinkling of this lamb. It says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. I believe this is talking about the second coming, because right now kings mock and laugh at the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll never forget when I went to the Maldives, the leaders of that country do not allow evangelism. They do not allow the gospel. They're very strict over if you can even have a Bible. The kings of the world mock the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day where kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. There is coming a day where the very kings and leaders of the world silence themselves. They go into the caves and the mountains, and they say, rocks, fall on us and hide us from the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now we move on to what is traditionally accepted as Isaiah 53, but as you see, you need those first two verses in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 53 begins with, who has believed our message? I mean, that's it. That's what separates heaven from hell. What do you do with this suffering servant? What do you do? Are you one of the people sprinkled by the blood of this servant? Behold the man, right? Who has believed our message? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, that's it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Spirit draws him, and no one can come to me unless the Father grants him. And blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed to you that I'm the Son of God, but my Father in heaven. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. He is God in human flesh. Just like your arm is a part of you, Jesus is more than just a part of God. He is the fullness of God dwelling in a body. But this is a great example. Look at your arm. It is you. Jesus is God. And in order to affirm that in your heart and spirit, the Father has to reveal who Jesus is to you. For he grew up before him like a 
tender shoots. Jesus was like a sucker branch when he was on earth. He was just like a little plant. There was there, there, He was like a root out of parched ground, like just a little root in a desert. He had no stately form or majesty. Here's the humility of our God. He doesn't it's already humble of God if he came down as an emperor, but no, he comes down as what this is essentially saying is an ugly servant. I mean, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He has no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He is not attractive. He is despised and forsaken of men. He is the despised and rejected one. This is humility like we cannot imagine. The eternal God despised and forsaken of men, clothed in flesh. It says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. Men hid their face from Jesus. Jesus most likely made them feel ashamed of their sins, or they would rage at Jesus because they held on to their own self-righteousness, and so men would hide their faces from Jesus. They would look away. They didn't want to see someone like this. If you want to get an idea of what this feels like, go try and share the gospel with a stranger. Do it lovingly. Do it gently. But if you keep sharing the gospel with people and you warn about sin, even in the most loving way, men will hide their face from you. You will bear in your bodies the afflictions of Jesus. You will see that that men do not like the light. Men hate the light because their deeds are evil. And so men hide their face from Jesus and his bride, right, and his church says he's despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. If you're taking notes, read Psalm 22. People cursed Jesus when he was on the cross. They mocked him. They thought God hated him. Look, look at this man. He's dying on a cross. He's dying under the wrath of God because he's a sinner. He's whatever they thought he was. And they didn't understand he was bearing their griefs. He, He was carrying their sorrows. He was dying for them. They thought God hated him, but he was the beloved son of God. And then the mo- one of the most glorious lines, it says, you know, we thought God afflicted him. We thought God was angry at him, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. The direct application of this is for the nation of Israel, but it applies to every son of Adam. He was pierced through for our transgression. 700 years before this man was born. This one prophecy, my friends, has more truth in it than every false religion of man, every ideology and atheism all combined. I talked to a man about this once, and I showed him this single prophecy, and I said, don't you understand? Do you have anything that you can sink your teeth into as true in what you believe? And he said, no. I don't. And I said, well, this is just one of 314 things written about this man before he was born, and thousands of things written about this man uh, foreshadowing his birth. But this is one of the clearest. 700 years prior to Christ being born, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Everyone who is of the truth comes to Jesus. This is obviously talking about him. He was crushed for our iniquities. God crushed Christ for the sins of all those who believe this report. It says the chastening, the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. We were supposed to go to hell. We were supposed to endure the wrath of God. We should have been smitten by God and afflicted, but Christ was. And by his scourging, Christ was scourged, 
not just by the Roman whip, but by the lake of fire, by the wrath of the Almighty. Jesus was crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Romans chapter 3 indicts the whole human race. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is substitutionary atonement. This is someone dying in your place, plain and simple. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The term scapegoat comes from a Jewish a temple sacrifice on the day of atonement. There would be a scapegoat. They would lay their hands on it and send it into the wilderness, send our sins away. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. Jesus is the scapegoat. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. My friends, He's oppressed and afflicted, but he stays silent. He is like a sheep that is silent before it shears. He does not open his mouth. This is so clear. Read in the New Testament. Pontius Pilate is amazed at Jesus. Every other man, Pontius Pilate might have crucified a thousand men. We don't know. Hundreds, at least dozens, right? And he sees all the men come before him, cowering in fear. Oh, have mercy on me. Like, don't, don't whip me. Don't kill me. I want to live, please. Jesus is silent. And Pontius Pilate was amazed at him. And we see that Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter, just like that scapegoat. For thousands of years, the nation of Israel is sacrificing lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. The moment you walk in the tabernacle through a single door, you enter that door and they are slaughtering a lamb on the bronze altar. And now the prophets come and they say, somebody's coming who's pierced for our transgression. He's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is why John the Baptist rejoiced when he finally saw Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, the Holy Spirit is trying to shine a light on Christ, and the devil and your flesh and the whole world is trying to obscure and mar who Jesus Christ really is. He is the Lamb of God. He is your only hope. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was judged. The creator God, who is the judge of the universe, humbled himself to become a poor non-attractive man, and was judged by his own creatures. Can you imagine that? The one who sits enthroned on the white throne, who opens the books and all our sins are contained in them, and he righteously judges us. He subjected himself to the humiliation and judgment of his own creatures. It says, as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living? This is so clear. Cut off is a Hebrew term. It means he was killed. Read Daniel chapter 9. With Isaiah 53, they're like the twin pillars of Bible prophecy. I've done videos on Daniel 9 as well. It predicts the exact day the Messiah strode into Jerusalem. And then it says he'll bring in everlasting righteousness. He'll make an end of sin. He will be cut off in Daniel 9. He will be killed and not for himself. He will be killed. This is what this chapter is saying. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He's going to die 700 years before he was born. Here's the gospel. Why is this arm of the Lord dying? For the transgression of my people, 
to whom the stroke was due. The sword of the Lord's wrath. If you want to research that throughout the Bible, a sword represents the justice and the judgment and the wrath of God. It says, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword and it will fall for judgment. And Jesus on the cross, God took that sword that should have been uh, should have sliced us apart. And he poured out the transgressions on Jesus, but then he took that sword and he plunged it into his own son. Zechariah 13, 17, strike the shepherd, strike the shepherd. The Lord says in Zechariah 13, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, strike the shepherd. Why would God strike the shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. We deserve destruction. We deserve punishment. But God struck, smit, and plunged the sword of his vengeance into his own son. You see, this is, this is a great salvation, not just because it's true and predicted before Jesus was born. Its truth adds to its glory. You see this is a prophecy. You see how true it is, and then you see why he had to die. This is glorious for the transgression of my people. He was struck. He was crushed. It then goes, I mean, you just see it. You see truth, gospel, truth, gospel, truth, gospel. Here's another truth. His grave is assigned with wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violent. There was no deceit in his mouth. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, he bought a brand new grave. You see, Jesus was assigned with wicked men. He was crucified in the middle of two other wicked men. One he graciously forgave and saved and took to paradise. The other he righteously damned to an eternity of hell. And that is his prerogative as the judge of the universe. But his grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death. He was in a brand new grave. The New Testament confirms all of this. It's incredible. And then it says this. This is so beautiful emotionally if we understand this. It says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. <laughs> putting him to grief. Don't, don't you understand? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't even take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's justice must be satisfied. The wicked must die. But God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the Lord is pleased to crush and grieve and kill his own son, the one who was beloved, his companion for all eternity, dwelling in that bliss that we cannot imagine within the Trinity, God was pleased to crush him. Why? Because he rendered himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. You see, my friends, Jesus's offspring, Jesus's children are spiritual children. That's me and you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, was pleased to kill Christ. You know, it's written of Christ in Hebrews that he despised the shame. He hated as the, the, the almighty creator to be subjected to dying naked and, and humiliated on a cross but he did it for the joy set before him. He did it for his offspring. He did it to glorify God's grace and goodness. It's all for God's glory. But my friends, it's for your good. God was pleased. Both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all took joy in crushing the Messiah so that he could see his offspring. Like Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat is crushed and falls into the ground and die, it does nothing. 
But if it's crushed, it produces many seeds, many offspring. And so for the church, for his bride, to redeem our souls from hell, God was well pleased to crush him. It says he will prolong his days. That's odd. He just died. He was just in a grave with a rich man, right? I mean, he's dead. But it says he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's the resurrection, my friends. He's in a grave, and now he prolongs his days. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. The anguish of Christ's soul. We can't even imagine the torrents and the anxiety and the fear, speaking of the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, sweating drops of blood. I would have cowered and ran away in that garden, but all Jesus said was, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, the cup of your wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His soul was in anguish and anxiety before the cross. And on the cross, we can only imagine what the flood of the wrath of God felt like for the sins of all of those who would ever believe. And so Christ's soul was in anguish. anguish, And it says he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will, this is so key, justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The Messiah, the righteous one, he is righteous, we are not. He's offering you his righteousness in the gospel. He's offering to robe you with his righteousness for all eternity. We read that by his knowledge, the righteous one, the servant, will justify the many. We need to be justified before a holy God on judgment day. And so you can be perfect, which you're not, and I'm not, or you can be sprinkled by this servant, by his blood. You need to be justified. And God is just. He will punish every sin, but he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's why he sent the servant to die so that we could live because he was bearing our iniquities. Last verse. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and earth is his. He is building a millennial kingdom. He's building a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, new earth. He's redeeming a people to live in that kingdom. The patience of the Lord, the reason the Lord has not come back yet, the patience of the Lord is salvation. He is still saving people to this day. And the Lord will allot him a great portion, and he'll divide the booty with the strong. Why? Why does he get this high, exalted place? Because he poured out himself to death. The single greatest act of love in existence. The Messiah poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He died amongst two sinners. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can intercede for you. He's a high priest, and the sacrifice he offers and sprinkles the nations with is his own blood. And if you believe in him, the next verse, shout for joy. Shout for joy. Do you see why, my friends, we need to be constantly reminded of the glories of the gospel? And what better way to do it than in Isaiah 53? Have a great day.